actually said something in your bio on your site. I think it was something like, uh, my goal has never been to like, uh, like come off as like a preacher or oh, something yeah. like that. And, and that, you know, that's spot on because the whole time I was reading the book, I was like, man, like there's finally an AI book out there that like doesn't penalize you for not knowing so much of like the terminology or being, or not being a part of that world. It's really yeah. simple to understand. And um, I feel like, yeah, absolutely. And I feel like the points you made were, um, you know, like all, all fact-based and nothing like crazy or loaded, but, um, yeah, it's a good read. And, um, but Hey man, before, again, before diving into it, if you want to take a chance to introduce yourself, that'd be great. Nah, no, I'm kidding. Uh, yeah, sure. So (laughs) uh, I'm Reed Blackman. I'm the author of the book, Ethical Machines. I am the founder and CEO of Virtue, which is a digital ethical risk consultancy or an AI ethical risk consultancy, depending upon what mood I'm in. I'm the volunteer chief ethics officer for the government blockchain association. I, um, if I'm not writing articles or a book in this case, and you know, I've got my eyes set on another book, uh, then I'm advising usually multinationals on how to create AI ethical risk programs. And then I also uh, advise the Canadian government on their federal AI regulations for AI or their pending or potential federal AI regulations. So that's the sort of thing that I do. Yeah. And before I did all this stuff, I was a philosophy professor for 10 years. Right. Which I, I saw. And, and that's, that's really cool because I think a lot of people, I myself included, would expect you to have some type of like engineering background or programming background. But um, I think what's really cool is like this, this obviously through philosophy, you have a uh, you know, a a perspective on what ethics and virtue and values um, are just through that lens. And I'm I'm just kind of curious, like what inspired you to go in the because I know, like, I I also remember in your bio, like you talking about um, some years that you spent teaching, and how you were inspired by like some of your students projects and but like, what else like inspired you to go into that AI direction? I mean, there's a variety of factors. I had, you know, I was a professor for 10 years, like I said. I had in grad school started a fireworks wholesaling company. And the reason that's relevant is that's what got me to working with students in their capacity as sort of aspiring startup founders. Um, And that gave me at some point the idea of, you know, I really like that they're doing something new and cool and interesting. And I want to do something new and cool and interesting, but I love philosophy. I love ethics. It's, you know, it's what I find the most interesting thing to study and dive deep on. And so I had this idea for an ethics consultancy, but I didn't know what it looked like. I didn't know if there was a market for it. In fact, at the time, there definitely was not a market for it. This was, you know, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago plus. And when I started hearing the alarm bells around a number of things, there was Black Lives Matter, there was Me Too, there was this thing about millennials and Gen Zers wanting to have more meaningful work, to work for companies that weren't prioritizing profit over people. At the same time, Somehow, you know, in the ether were engineers ringing the alarm bells around the social impacts and ethical impacts of AI. And that's when I started to see a market. And that's when I started to really dig into, okay, what's this AI ethics stuff all about? Um, Because it seemed to me that ethics was becoming more and more relevant to businesses, even if they didn't know it yet. They were coming to see it. And they needed to get their ethical houses in order, but they don't know how to do that because they don't know ethics. But I know ethics. And so that's how I started on the path. And then I just find the AI stuff really interesting. I just think... 
emerging technologies are really interesting. The kinds of impacts that they might have are really interesting. The various use cases are interesting. And so that to me is more interesting than, you know, let's say stuff around me too, because they're the, the answers are, are obvious in a sense that right? the don't sexually harass women. That's, that's, you know, that's <laughs> obvious, right? It's not, there's no intellectual challenge there. Um, it's morally important, just not intellectually challenging. And so the intellectual challenge of getting my getting my mind around AI and its implications was itself, you know, intrinsically interesting. Yeah. No, and I, I get that too, because I think um I think we're definitely heading in a direction where uh without guys like you, uh a lot of companies are using really powerful technology, um, really just in the name of like, you know, either just trying to make maximum profit or make things as efficient as possible. But like your book kind of outlined and showed like that doing that with, you know, with awareness of the power that comes with this technology and uh, really wanting to um, maintain some humanity in, in this direction that we're heading into the society, like how important that is. And um, I guess like for you, what was was there like a moment or something that led to you realizing how impactful AI would be to society, to the workforce? Um, but yeah, like when was your like kind of first realization of that? You know, I don't know that I had. I don't know if that there was the realization. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, what I really started by doing is just digging into AI and machine learning more generally, just trying to to figure out what this technology is all about. And then I saw, okay, here's this problem. You know. I read, of, as everyone else did in this space, the ProPublica piece in 2016 that was about the AI Compass software that systematically discriminated against Black people. Um, read about uh, what? I mean, Optum had a had a discriminatory algorithm at one point. You know, I just kept seeing use cases. Obviously, self-driving cars was a big thing. Everyone loved to talk about the trolley problem, even though it's not that important. Um, they love talking about it. So it just, you know, the stuff builds. And then the more you understand the technology, it's sort of like, Okay, I see now. It's not just that these things happen to happen. It's not incidental to the type of technology. It's integral to the technology. It's it's because the technology works the way that it does, because machine learning is the beast that it is, that's why these kinds of ethical problems are are coming up. So it's not novel ethical risks. It's not novel sort it's not novel problems. It's just novel sources of the problem. And the way that AI and machine learning in particular works, it's particularly likely to give rise to discriminatory outputs, privacy violations, you know, black box problems. So I think that's what sort of, that's when I started really getting into it. Okay, it's not just, you know, you used a tool in, in, in a bad way. It's the way the tool is built necessarily is going to increase the probability of certain kinds of risks. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I remember that too. I think just going right into uh like the very beginning of your book in, in terms of i like that you immediately frame that there's an ai that we understand um like through the pop culture lens and then like what like how ai is actually being implemented in a realistic way and i guess would you uh maybe explain kind of like because i because i agree with you in that i think ai has been kind of introduced to the to the pop culture as a thing to fear that will take over us one day and like just destroy humanity but um maybe like if you would like like to find i guess like 
maybe explain like the more realistic ground, maybe even where that fear comes from and if it's coming from a real place. But um, yeah. Yeah, so that sort of pop culture um, concern centers around what gets called artificial general intelligence or AGI. And that's when you start thinking about the Terminator or something like that. So the main thing there is that you've got something like roughly speaking, morally evil robots. You've got machines that have goals not given to them by humans that um, are antithetical to human flourishing or even human survival for that matter. So that's that's something like AGI, uh, artificial general intelligence, and that's what the pop culture thing is, right? The Terminator has its own goals. Hal, I think of uh, 2001 Space Odyssey, I think Hal has its own goals. We don't have that now. I don't think we're ever going to have that. There's a big debate about this. I think it's sort of um, it's completely blown out of proportion. And the way that people talk about artificial general intelligence is totally, for the most part, irresponsible, including the way that, say, OpenAI talks about it. Um, the, mo the, the thing that people are using AI for now, and the vast majority of AI around now is machine learning, it's, it's making certain kinds of predictions. If you want to be a little bit fancy about it, you call them predictive models. <laughs> And so they might predict, hey, is this person going to default on a mortgage? Is this person going to commit a crime within the next two years? Is this person going to be a good student if we admit them to the university? Is this person going to be a good employee if we give them a job or you know start off with an interview? Um, is this person going to die of diabetes or be diagnosed with diabetes within the next two years? Are they going to develop diabetes within the next two years? Um, will this drug be good for this, this kind of person? And so on. So it's making certain kinds of predictions hmm. about people. Um, how does it do this? Well, it just learns by example. So AI sounds really complicated or machine learning sounds, I think, scary to a lot of people, but it's just software that learns by example. And I just want for any of your listeners who are not technologists or any, not even near technologists, all they really need to get is that AI is software that learns by example. And you know what software is, you use it every day, and you know what examples are. And if you want a fancy word for examples, it uses the word data. So it's software that learns by data. So you feed it all these examples, you feed it all this data, and it learns to make certain kinds of predictions like, oh, uh, you know, I learned from all these examples what a good job candidate looks like or what a good, you know, a good mortgage application looks like um, or, you know, what a, what a, you know, a good defendant looks like. That is to say one who's not going to likely commit a crime in the next two years. They're low risk for committing a crime. You know, the software learns what those things look like. And then they predict for new cases, oh yeah, this person's going to default on a loan. This person's going to commit a crime. This person uh, should have a low insurance premium. You know, that that's all it's, that's what it's doing. Yeah. And there's all sorts of ways that things can go ethically sideways, but that's all it's doing. Hmm. Yeah. Also, you're, you, cause you, your book sent me down a rabbit hole. I didn't realize uh, as well how much, uh, um, I guess their sorting through applications was also uh, involved AI and um yeah no I mean there's a there's a lot that um I and I and I I I personally understand where the fear comes from I think it's I, to some degree human nature when you see something that is impacting society um and when you're outside of it it seems like it kind of came out of nowhere so it seems like this thing just super quickly came out of nowhere and is now disrupting everything um, and I think, you know, I think some of the big voices in this conversation have been guys like um, Elon. And unfortunately, um, instead of like there being videos that really explain what 
um, we're seeing in, in doing that. Usually, all the videos you see, it's usually guys like Elon that are like saying how scared they are that like this is going to be yeah. a problem that escapes from our hands. And I think, well, depending on what circles you talk to, he's either the smartest guy in the world or or the dumbest. <laughs> he's definitely a polarizing yeah. figure. But do you do you see? Yeah. I don't know if you've seen any of his videos talking about it do you think any of his fears are, are rational at all no not really um look it may well be that the way in which ai gets developed and deployed yada yada wreaks a tremendous amount of havoc that's totally plausible so there's a he might have if you like the right conclusion but for totally the wrong reasons i don't think we're anything near uh machines being capable of understanding i don't think we're anywhere near the machines adopting their own goals. I think if they get goals that are antithetical to human survival or flourishing, that's because we put them in there somehow or other. Um, so I'm not worried about those kinds of things, you know, when the machines are smarter than than us. I'm not worried about that. Um, but there are plenty of reasons to be worried nonetheless, because you do have all sorts of ways that AI is being developed, billions of dollars being thrown into it. Companies are, in my estimation, acting recklessly. Um, uh, I think that we just saw that with Microsoft in the way that they, I think in my, you know, in my view, they hastily released Bing plus ChatGPT, whatever it is, um, you know, 3.5 or 4.0 is not totally clear, but you know, I, I think that there, there's a, there's a bit of an AI, not a bit, there's just an AI arms race and it's only going to get worse. I don't see how it gets better unless regulations come in. And not only that, but we're going to see, not only will we see further developments of AI, and I don't know what they're going to be, but we're going to see further developments of other technologies that will also interact with AI. And we're going to get all sorts of crazy stuff. You know, you're going to get quantum computers plus AI plus blockchain plus AR plus VR plus, mm. you know, it's, uh, there's just, it's such a complicated morass <laughs> that I don't think that anyone has control over these technologies, not really, because they're so complex, they're so complicated, they're so interconnected. And really understanding them is a requirement for the safe operation of them. And really understanding them takes time that companies are not willing to spend when they could roll things out that are, if you like, good enough for the time being to start getting market get, getting market share, make, making a profit, et cetera. Mm. And, and do you, um, I guess with you saying that, I'm curious, have you ever been asked to or have you ever thought of uh, consulting maybe um, uh, like education boards on some of these things? Like I, I, I think uh, in the past month or so, um, I've been seeing a lot of uh, universities come out and say that, um, you know, they're, they're, they're gonna, they're asking students to not use things like chat GPT. And um, then of course I see some points where it's like, I, they, people think that the schools are making the wrong move, that should, they should find ways to work with this, like with AI, they use it as tools. But um, like, how do you think it'll impact uh, education? Things like chat GPT? I mean, I don't know, I don't have a crystal ball. Um, I, I think that, you know, one thing is that, I, I don't see anything wrong with, say, using it as a tool. Not, not obviously. When schools get criticized for banning use of it, I think that's premature as well, though. I mean, I was, like I said, I was a professor for ten years. You know, a grad student for six or so years before that, and an undergrad before that. So I spent a long time in school, and 
you got to give them a second. You know, the thing just came out. <laughs> it takes yeah. it takes time. I mean, they've they've got day jobs already. And to then say, oh, now learn this new technology, understand how it might be used in various ways by students, create policies around how they can and cannot use it, and rearrange your classes and your assignments to accommodate use of that tool. It's like, hold on a second. I mean, give them a minute. So is the band going to be you know, effective, pragmatically speaking? Probably not. Students will just cheat. Um, but I understand where they're coming from. It, it takes time to develop a course, to think of the appropriate kinds of paper topics or assignments that you want to evaluate your students with. Um, so I understand people who are like, let's just give us a second. No one's allowed to use it right now. That doesn't seem to me like a crazy idea at all, putting aside the um, the pragmatic difficulties in implementing such a policy. Um, I also think, look, maybe it should be used as a tool in some circumstances, but I also think that staring at a blank page and having to create something from nothing is a really valuable skill to have. Yeah. Um, and it should be taught. I don't think that's, I mean, that strikes me as just the, I mean, I suppose this is sort of self-congratulatory and utterly reasonable too. <laughs> um, people use calculators in math classes, but you should also know how to do, you know, some multiplying and some addition and some long division or whatever um, without use of a calculator. So yes, we've got calculators, use them in your math classes, but there's also good reasons for math teachers to teach people how to do some some level of math without using a calculator. Um, similarly, you've got generative AI now. So forget about you know Bing and Bard, which are the the, the language models, the the chatbots for Microsoft and Google respectively. There's also those uh, visual generative models that create pictures, right? Like Dolly and Stable Diffusion. It doesn't mean we should stop teaching art. We should still people you know teach kids how to draw, teach teach them how to paint. Uh, that's still really interesting, valuable skills to learn. So yeah, use it as a tool. Um, but the idea that it should obliterate writing something from nothing or creating a piece of music or a piece of visual artwork from nothing, which of course it shouldn't replace that. That'd be crazy. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think, I mean, I've, I've uh, seen some of those uh, programs like uh, AI stuff that it's like, you know, we'll, we'll make music out of nothing or write papers, this or that. And I still don't think, and maybe it will get to that level someday, but I, I don't think it's anywhere near... Uh, replacing anyone who's spent the time to like learn the nuances of what makes yeah. someone great at that stuff. Um, yeah. That goes for both writing and um, uh, anything creative. Um, yeah. But, uh, and, you know, going back to your book, though, I um, it made me think, the, the, especially the first chapter about bias, um, it, it really made me wonder, and I wonder what your opinion is like on if some of that bias, especially the racial bias, that stood out to me for sure. If if you think it's just coming from uh, like a like an honest place where it's just a, a per, like human bias, or do you think it's coming from like a more cynical place um, in terms of like saying like these types of people, whether based on race or gender, are safer or more dangerous than others? But but maybe you can explain what that process is like in determining that. Yeah, so look, there's lots of places where you can come up with a biased or discriminatory model. And when I say biased or discriminatory, I mean that in sort of like the pejorative ethical sense um, in the way that, you know, in the sense that it'd be a violation of a civil right to treat people in such and such a way in, in that biased or discriminatory fashion. Um, there's lots of ways of coming up with that. I don't think, and I think it's really important to highlight that in the vast majority of cases, it has nothing really to do with the attitudes, discriminatory or biased attitudes 
uh, the people who are designing the AI. It's, it's not that. So to give you one example, I think this was in 2018, I think it was reported by Reuters that Amazon was creating a resume reading AI. So you know, Amazon gets tens of thousands of resumes every day. So they give it a bunch of examples of what good resumes look like. I just say data. It learns what good resumes look like. And um, the pattern, what it learned is that we don't hire women around here. And so when you gave it new resumes, it started redlighting those, the, you know, those women's resumes. Now, what's interesting, there's a couple of things interesting about the story. One of them is that the data scientists worked on this product for two years. They couldn't figure out how to sufficiently de-bias it. And so they, they junked the project. They threw away the project. Um, despite the fact that it cost, you know, the time of very expensive engineers and data scientists to work on this thing. So one thing is that this is often billed as a as a disaster story in AI ethics. I actually think it's a phenomenal success story because at the end of the day, the organ the multinational organization did the right thing and threw away the model. The second thing to say about it is that those were people who were intentionally trying to debias it. It's not like they had these, you know, really tricky subterranean biases that were overcoming their explicit intention to not discriminate. Mm. No, it's not that. It's just that there's a, a range of technical problems that are hard to overcome, even when you're really trying to overcome them. So for instance, you're, the, what AI is doing, what the software is doing, it's looking at these phenomenally complex mathematical patterns, right? Yes, it's looking at resumes, but those resumes are all translated into zeros and ones, right? It's, it's looking at data. It's looking at these mathematical patterns that are contained in these massive data sets, massive. And the, you know, the math, they're looking at those, you know, the variables and the mathematical relations among those variables. So we're talking about just really complex math. Now, it, they told the AI, okay, if it says women, let's say it says women's double NCAA basketball, don't pay attention to that. Or if, if it's the name of a woman's college, don't pay attention to that. But then it found other things, other variables that highly correlate with being a woman. So for instance, it turns out, according to Roy, the Reuters article, that men use the word execute more than women do in their resumes. So men will say, I executed on the strategy. Uh. But for whatever reason, women tend not to use that word. And the, their AI, the Amazon AI, picked up on that. And so it started green lighting resumes that said execute and red lighting are the ones that did not. So it found something that correlates with being a man and a woman and then made, as it were, you know, decisions based on that. So then you can say, okay, listen, computer, software, don't pay attention to the word execute. But then it's going to find some other thing that highly correlates with it. So it's a really hard technical problem trying to figure out what are all the variables that may correlate with being a man or being a woman or being black or being white or being Asian, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's just a real, it's not the attitudes of the engineers or the data scientists. It's just that among other things, there are technical difficulties. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. I, I really appreciate that, uh, that explanation. Cause I think, um, I, I don't want to speak for everybody that's not well versed in the AI world, but I think it's really easy to think that um, <laughs> there's just someone, you know, maybe it like all depends on like what maybe one guy or group of people think about people. So then like their exact thoughts and feelings is just like exactly mimicked by this technology. But um, yeah. yeah, no, yeah, no. That, sorry, go ahead. It's not, yes, yeah, not the teams. I mean, if you want to talk about people's biased attitudes or discriminatory attitudes, then the place where they most plausibly make sense to enter into the story about how we're lined up with this is that those attitudes, and not just the attitudes, but say policies that have been in place for decades, explain why the data looks the way that it does. 
So for instance, let's suppose, crazily enough, that there's been um, an attitude historically towards women such that they're bad at math and science, hmm. right? And then let's say that that discourages women from getting into STEM and it discourages them from applying to jobs in STEM. And it also might explain why hiring managers might have a negative attitude towards women who apply for those STEM positions, okay? That would explain why those data scientists at Amazon got the data that they did, right? So it's not that people's biased attitudes or discriminatory policies don't play some role in what in how you wind up with discriminatory outputs. It does, but it, the place in the story, if you like, where the bias enters in is not the bias of the data scientists building the models, building the AI. It's the data that reflects a world that is written with various kinds of discriminatory attitudes, discriminatory policies, and so on. Mm. Okay. Yeah, no, that, that definitely makes sense. Um, and also, I, I think uh, your uh, the chapter on um, where you explain, like, well, why it's important f to explain the results of uh, certain things, um, I found really interesting. Um, like, you used... Um, like someone applying for uh, a loan to obtain a mortgage as an example, or, um, or even uh, someone awaiting like a, a, a cancer diagnosis. And, and I was trying to think of like what other um, things like that maybe we interact with on an everyday basis or that maybe people have interacted with that um, maybe lack that need to explain that, that you discussed. Because I, I really liked how you um introduce that as like one of your main reasons was that it's just respectful to uh explain uh why this result came about but yeah like what are some other things that we do that maybe interact with that like could use that or it or does have that yeah so the the problem where the issue of explainability comes up because of those really complex mathematical patterns that i talked about so it's learning these really complex mathematical patterns and they're so complex that we can't wrap our tiny human brains around them we understand the language of math, but you know, it's a you know it's a forty-page mathematical formula. You know, we can't we can't keep that all in our heads at once. So that's what you wind up with, and so that's why when the AI says, you know, yeah, give that person a mortgage, or don't give them a mortgage, or yes, that's the suspect, or no, it's not, or yes, they're high risk or low risk for repayment of a loan, or committing a crime, or being a good employee, whatever. Um, you know, in a lot of those cases, you want explanations for why. The portion is getting that you know why we're why we're getting the output that we are and if it's a really complex mathematical pattern that we can understand then we can't under understand why this decision was arrived at in some cases we don't care if your ai is just tagging photos of your dog pepe and it's getting it right you're like i don't care the mathematical pattern it's recognizing to get my you know pepe photos in order i just don't care it doesn't matter it's low stakes but if it's hey look you're going to develop diabetes within the next two years you should you know follow this treatment plan now we might really care. Well, how, why, why do you think I'm? Why do you think I'm at high risk for diabetes, or why do you think I'm at high risk for committing a crime in the next two years, and thus making decisions about whether I should deserve bail or not? Um, for those things, we want explanations. One reason we want explanations is because, to put it most broadly, is the explanations. You know, the model, the AI, is taking certain inputs and translating that to certain outputs. There are the mathematical rules, the mathematical patterns that is recognizing all, in all that data are the rules by which it transforms inputs to outputs. 
And if you don't know what the rules of the game are, so to speak, then you're not in any position to assess whether the rules of the game are fair or just mm. or good or reasonable um, or discriminatory. So one reason why we want to be able to understand why the uh, software is making the decision that it is is because we need to understand that process if we're to be able to assess whether it's on the ethical up and up. Yeah. Especially in high stakes scenarios. And then the other thing that you mentioned is not only do we want that, but in some cases, I think we want an explanation for why we're treating poor, why we're being treated poorly. You know, it's it's disrespectful. Mm -hmm. It's it's too dismissive of us if they just say, no, no, you don't get a mortgage. Why not? Well, we're not going right. to tell you. It, that seems to me disrespectful to, you know, part of recognizing someone else's humanity is is to say, listen, let me explain to you the rationale behind why you were denied. And to just say like, nah, that's your problem. Don't care. I'm not, I'm not giving any sort of explanation. Aside from being um, not helpful, <laughs> um, it's just, I think it's to showcase a certain lack of disrespect. Yeah, I, I, I definitely agree with that. And, and I feel like it would train people in a way to um not actually figure out what the issue is but just figure out like how to beat this game of like i guess being acceptable whether that's a, a job application or yeah. um you know anything else but yeah no i found that chapter to be uh extremely insightful um man i'm trying to think of uh some other things i think uh in talks and now where like i think another outside of the pop culture conversation about ai i think privacy would probably be second in terms of how much we um discuss it and um actually I'm, i think there was a I, I put wrote down somewhere um the quote i took note of it in the book it was something like uh the main assumption is I can't remember it exactly, but you made it blew my mind because you made me realize that I've always taught, uh, thought about privacy through the lens of um, being anonymous, that I never actually asked myself if them having that data, regardless of whether they have my identity as well, also matters. Um, do, you, do you maybe want to like just kind of explain what your thinking was behind um, the importance of privacy? Yeah, I mean, I, I, there's, I should say, I'll, I'll say at the outset that there's sort of like the view that I take in my book, that's sort of the official view, then there's the unofficial view, but I'll give you the official view. Um, and this is not, first I'll start with just with a distinction that I think is not part of any view, it's just, I think it's just a matter of fact. So you could have a passive or an active conception of privacy. The passive conception of privacy means that your privacy is respected, your data privacy is respected on the condition that I treat your data in a certain way. I am the organization or the company, or whatever that's collecting your data. Um, so as long as I treat it in a certain way, let's say I make sure it's anonymized. So I hash out your name and your email address and you know any other sort of personal identifiable information, PII I've got about you, I hash it out, I encrypt it, people can't read it, no one can see it. If according to a passive conception of privacy, I if that's the only conception of privacy that you're into, then you are passive with respect to whether or not your privacy is respected because you're passive with respect to whether or not I do certain things with your data, namely anonymize it, et cetera. An active conception of privacy, though, thinks about privacy slightly differently, or not even slightly, quite differently. It thinks about privacy as a capacity to be exercised. 
So you say, I want to exercise my right to privacy. That means you get to do something. So for instance, when you're in your bedroom and you draw the shades of the bedroom, that's you exercising your right to privacy. It's something that you do. It's capacity that you have. You have a capacity to shut others out. If someone knocks on your bedroom door and you decide to let them in, again, that's you exercising your right to privacy. You opening the door for that person is you deciding to let them in as opposed to keeping them out. So privacy is not just a passive state of being. It's you having control over who has access to, in this case, access to you, your body, whatever, what, what, you, you, know, what, you, what you look like in your bedroom, et cetera. So an active conception of privacy as applied to data privacy is you've got control over who has access to your data for how long, under what conditions, et cetera. So if you think that an active conception of data privacy is something that we should really fight for, then it's not just being anonymous. It's not making sure that me, the organization or set of organizations treats your data in a certain way. It's giving you a certain level of control over your data. So you can exercise your right to data privacy by exercising control over who has access to your data and under what conditions. Hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, uh, also, um, you know, I'll, I'll say that I, I think myself and a lot of people think that data is mainly used, you know, to try to like find out more about us, know how to advertise towards us. But, um, you know, in learning, I've, I've learned that there are, you know, some more nefarious reasons as to why some of these companies want um, our data. There's uh, other, I guess, more uh, reasons in the name of, of profit. But can you maybe touch on like the number of reasons uh, and, and, the, and the, maybe the, even the type of companies that um, are, uh, you know, looking to, to get as much data on people as possible? Yeah, I mean, the thing is that we don't, we don't, always know what they're going to use our data for. A lot of companies just collect a bunch of data about people because maybe one day we'll need it. Maybe one day we'll think of a use for it. And so that gets people worked up. And then there are worries that if they've got the data, that data is capable of being acquired by people who really shouldn't have access to it. People who have bad intentions, um, say scammers or something like, or hackers or something along those lines. Um, who knows who they're going to sell that data to and what those people might do with that data. Maybe, I don't, they don't do this, but as far as I know, but, you know, let's say Apple takes the data taken from your health app and then set, turns around and sells that to an insurance company, which then uses that to adjust your insurance premiums. Oh, this person is, you know, their heart rate is pretty low on average or pretty, you know, we should, we should give them a higher premium now or something along those lines. I don't think Apple is doing that, but I don't know. There's, lo there's loads of other, you know, smart health app companies that, who, you know, they collect all this data. It's not officially, that is to say, legally healthcare data, but they can be sold to, say, insurance companies or healthcare companies, life sciences, who, who knows? So one of the concerns that you just don't know what the downstream effect is going to be. Hmm. That's one That's one issue. There's also, as you said, lots of advertising going on. Um, I'll say for what it's worth, people get really worked up about now they're going to try to sell me stuff because they've got data about me and they're going to show me certain ads that are targeted to me. Some people find this an absolute affront to human dignity. I, I frankly, I struggle to see what the what the catastrophe is. I mean, you know, I get shown an a, you know an ad for a towel or a different kind of you know in ear headphone instead of I don't know 
a protein bar. Like, I don't really care. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not, I, maybe I'm being naive. I don't really see why I'm supposed to get all worked up about the kind of targeted advertising that goes on. Um, I'm waiting for someone to enlighten me on, on that front. But to me, it's not, it's less about targeted advertisement and more about who, what else are they going to do with it? Who are they going to sell it to? What are those people going to do with it? Whatever that's going to do, the odds that they are looking out for my welfare, my well-being are slim to none. And that's the source of concern, I think. Hmm. Yeah. And, and maybe this might be a little bit out of um, your wheelhouse. I'm not sure. But I, I do think the the um, where this conversation has specifically been, um, you know, really popular, especially in social media, has been the question of, um, you know, whether uh, uh, using TikTok is a concern, uh, whether a national security concern. And I guess yeah. trying to definitely I think American officials have been trying to um, appeal to, to people in a way like just saying like, you know, like China might be doing something scary with your information. But um, I guess like when it, when it comes to things like like because it's one thing if it's like Facebook or just some company that's trying to sell you. But what, what does this conversation mean when it comes to like a topic of like national security or, or safety? Yeah. So I think. Among other things, it has to do with an ability to spread disinformation. Mm. So I know certain things about you. I know what things kind of catch your fancy. And that is going to put me in a good position to create certain kinds of content that you're really going to devour, that you're really going to like and go down the rabbit hole with. And if I make that content filled with disinformation, say, about the American government, um, and I'm in, it's in my interest to have an unstable American society, then now I know how to do that kind of thing. I think that's one of the kinds of concerns. Then there's also just, you know, making people stupid. <laughs> just this is the straight up, like, let's just serve them a bunch of content that makes them dumber and dumber, <laughs> um, captures more and more of their time. I'll say, although as of today, I saw that TikTok announced that they're going to limit, we'll see how effective this actually turns out to be, but limit teenage use of TikTok to one hour per day. That's pretty, it's a pretty impressive uh, policy if it turns out to be effective and true. Wow. Um, yeah, so I think that's that's the kind of concern. And then, of course, there's still things like you got personal information about people. You can use that to scam them in various ways. Uh, you can use that. You can create a false, uh, you know, a fake identity or a duplicate identity, and then do you know engage in identity theft. So there's all sorts of there's all sorts of things that bad people can get up to when they have a bunch of data about you. So if you think that TikTok a collects that kind of personal data. Um, and B, it can be exploited by the owners of TikTok, ByteDance, um, in ways that are nefarious, then you've got reason for concern. Hmm. Yeah, no, that's that's interesting. And I and I, and I, I guess it kind of makes sense that their first uh, course of action was um, uh, limiting or, or in some states just completely eliminating the use of it from uh, government officials. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. Yeah, that doesn't strike me as crazy. I mean... <laughs> Look, suppose it's all turned out to be false. Let's just suppose for the sake of argument. No, actually, ByteDance, the Chinese company, is not doing that stuff. They're not collecting the data. They're not doing anything nefarious with it. Let's say it turns out to be false. Okay. But until that investigation is complete to know that it's false, it's wise to be cautious. Let's just get this to stuff off government uh, computers and phones. And, uh, you know, until, until a further investigation is until we really know what's going on here. That seems to me a completely reasonable thing to do. Yeah, no, I, I'm I'm on board with you there. And on that note, on the, about the TikTok thing that came out today, I'm interested to see how they'll do a, age verification to even yeah. like 
uh, I guess, uh, um, apply that. But yeah, that's interesting. I would like um, to know too. Yeah, I haven't. I I know very little more than the headline on that, given that was you know the, one of the headlines today, and I looked at it and said, okay, that's interesting. But I'd be interested to know where that how they wound up on a, one hour. Does it make a difference between one hours and two hours? Is it? I just don't. You know how plausible it is to enforce it. To your point about age verification. So there's questions about the extent to which they can enforce it, and there's a, a question about the extent to which it actually has or mitigates the impacts we're trying to mitigate. I just don't know the answer to those questions. I'm not sure that anybody does. Yeah, and um, also the uh, on the note of the um, you know us talking about like when you were using Apple as an example, that also made me think about. Um, I guess this happened. This they rolled this out. It's been either a year or two now, of uh, um. Now, like anytime you download an app, uh, there's like a prompt pops up where it says, you know, would you like to allow uh, this app to, to track you or not? And um, obviously every company seems to be quite upset uh, about that. Uh, Facebook being one of the, the biggest ones that came out and um, said that basically it was it was it was really <laughs> messing things up for them. And um, yeah, I know I, I guess uh, I don't. I guess, I, and I'm not sure if that's a year or two old. I can't quite remember when that popped up. I don't think it's two up. years. I think it's probably max one year. I'm not sure though. Okay, cool. But but did you um, what what did you as someone who who is kind of in this world of like ethics and and providing the the users more uh, transparency about what's going on? Like like what what did you think about that? Uh, like what what Apple did? Do you think it's enough? Too much? You know, again, I'm sort of, you know, this is my unofficial view that, you know, I, I'm sort of playing around with making it, you know, a louder view that I espouse, but I, I don't mind saying it. So I don't, I don't know. Again, I, I know I'm supposed to get really worked up about targeted ads. You know, oh, I'm, I'm in the ethics space. You're supposed to targeted ads or a scourge. And I just don't really know what people are talking about. Like, I just don't care that certain people, are, I mean, if we were talking about, you know, there was one case in which Facebook was showing ads for homes to buy to white people and homes to rent to black people, mm. which would continue a history of white people owning homes and black people renting them. That's problematic. That's an issue. That's not, you know, that's a, but that there, the issue is it's discriminatory, not that it's targeted as mm. such. Um, so, you know, Apple can do that kind of thing. One, cause it's, it's with their brand. Apple doesn't make money from collecting your data and selling your data so they can literally afford to make privacy a pillar of their brand and then they can do things to say a facebook that facebook doesn't like because they they depend upon it for their ad revenue um i don't know you know one question i want to ask is whose lives are so much better now that that's been done and I and I and I mean that question half sincerely. I mean I say I mean it sincerely. I mean I'm, I'm just skeptical that anyone's life has actually improved as a result of Apple doing that. It might sort of feels good when you reflect on. Oh, it's so great! I'm finally stopping Facebook from collecting my data and selling it to advertisers. But really, is your day to day life so much better? Is this something that we should really, you know, is this a great achievement in the AI ethics space? I would much rather have wins in the say uh, anti discriminatory. Uh, space of this than I would about, you know, Facebook can't sell your data to companies that are using your data and aggregate with the data of, you know, thousands or millions of other people and then automating um, ad placement to you. I, I just don't, again, I, I'm sure that, I, you know, there's lots of people in the ethics space who think I'm totally wrong about this, but I, I've yet to hear a convincing argument why I should be worked up.
Yeah. No, I, I, I get that. And um, I think uh, I think I was listening to a podcast episode. Um, it was uh, actually the guy who invented the algorithm for targeted ads. He was on Joe Rogan's podcast mm-hmm. and um, he was sa- he was kind of saying something similar to you. And obviously, like a lot of people kind of uh, brushed off his opinion because they're like, well, of course, you have some incentive to say it's not a big deal. But um, I think what I found interesting, he said that um, he said that, like, if, for example, they do two targeted ads now with um, without being able to do targeted ads, that they're just going to give you like six total ads and hope that one or two of them stick. Um, So it just means that actually like the user experience is just filled with more ads. Um, (laughs) So it's like, all right. Is that better? That seems worse to me. It's like, yeah. oh, they're going to show you stuff that you would enjoy purchasing and having. It's like, oh, okay. That, <laughs> I think I'll survive that. I think I'm going to be all right. Right. Yeah. Also, I don't have to buy it. You know, this just in. I don't have to buy the things that they advertise to me. I could just say, no, and yeah. that's it. It's so, you know, and then there's this sort of story that gets told like, oh, they're pushing these, these buttons inside your brain to make you purchase it. No, no, they're not. No, that's an that's an insane metaphor. I mean, what percentage of ads actually lead to a purchase? Right? Mm. I mean, it's not. I'll bet you that it's less than one percent. Yeah. And if it's less than one percent, then you're not very good at pushing this button, are you? So it's not really total control, is it? Yeah. Um. So yeah, I you know there there's loads of ways I think that we can you know maybe our autonomy can get undermined, our ability to choose um, rationally can be undermined. Targeted ads. I don't know. Uh, again and then there's this issue you know people get worked up that oh they're profiting from your data it's sort of like well they already profit from my desires you know the companies <laughs> they sell they, they profit from my hopes my dreams yeah. my desires the things that i love right like i love my children and then they i see an advertisement for a blankie and i get the blankie they're profiting from your love of your children okay fine i still want the blanket like it's, <laughs> should i should i like think the company should go down because they're profiting from the love of my children no it's so if they profit from my love and my passions and my desires and my hopes and my fears if they also profit from my data this doesn't seem like you know now we've crossed a line yeah. um, and then the other thing is that it's also not your data there's this it's data about you there's this line that goes there's da- it's data about me therefore it's my data and it's just a bad argument. I mean, if you walk into the cafe or, you know, if I walk into a cafe and you're, and you write down in your notebook, read into the cafe at 10 o'clock and you write that down in your notebook, I can't go over to you, rip the page out of your notebook and say, that's my data. It's not mine. It's yours. <laughs> it's in your notebook. It's data about me, but it's not my data. So then there's this, you know, this constant refrain of, you know, they're, they're profiting from your data. Well, no, they're profiting from data about you that they collected when you voluntarily went onto their website and started doing stuff on it. After maybe, and maybe years ago, you shouldn't have known better, right? But now, now, if you still do it, that's on you. Yeah. Yeah, no, I I, I definitely agree with that for sure. Um, like, yeah, at, th- at this point in 2023, it, it, it should be pretty obvious that, you know, yeah, they're, they're, they're trying every way, every angle to, to make a buck off you. And yeah, um, yeah. so that, I mean- do. <laughs> uh and i i know with uh, uh our time is uh you know we're coming to a close here but i i think uh maybe to close it out because first you know 
again, I'd like to thank you for coming on because in reading your book, um, I was hoping you would not just anyone would come on and talk about AI stuff, but I was hoping you specifically because I, I felt I feel like you are one of the few people in this space that have an opinion that's in between don't worry about it at all and like the machines are, you know, coming to uh, kill us, um, you know, and uh, I don't know, but wanted to just get from you um, what you think people should, A, take away, people that are going to read your book, uh, take away from it and also just what, um, how people should feel about I guess the the AI conversation in general, how it impact the future. Because, like I said earlier, I think you have a very reasonable um, uh, um, take on all of this. So, yeah. Yeah. Thanks. I, look, I I don't think you know things like targeted advertising are the end of the world. Um, I do think that there are massive, pretty massive ethical risks. They're not, you know, some of them might be special, some might not. It's Things are definitely going to go sideways. I don't think there's a question about that. Think they already are going sideways. They'll continue to go sideways. The extent is, is the the question is the how much are we going to let it go sideways? How how crazy are we going to get here? Um, I think that the thing to walk away with is that it can be done reasonably well from an ethical perspective. There's definitely going to be you know some carnage, but there's better and worse. We should be we should strive for better over worse. I don't think we're going to get there really without some serious regulations. Um, we're getting that in the European Union, it looks like. But if we don't have some kind of requirements about what it looks like to to develop the to develop and deploy these systems ethically, then we're gonna have we're gonna have a real problem. Um, one of the problems is that people don't even like saying the word ethics. Um, I think people need to get real comfortable saying it. They like to people like to use a different word for it, like it's you know responsible or trustworthy or AI assurance or something like that. But I think that if we can't name the problem, we're not going to be able to solve it. I think we are dealing with real ethical issues here, ethical risks. We need to call them ethical risks and then come up with plausible regulations to make sure that the ethical nightmares aren't realized. Not, We're not going to stamp out all the ethically bad stuff. It's not possible. And regulation and law is not supposed to, to stamp out all the ethically bad stuff. Right? I can lie to you. I can tell you a lie. And it's not illegal. And I shouldn't go to jail for it. I shouldn't pay a fine. It's just ethically wrong for me. So I'm not concerned about some you know ethical violations here and there. I'm, I'm concerned about ethical nightmares. That's what I'm concerned about. And with the government making sure or doing everything that it can to require companies to systematically stop or avoid those ethical nightmares from being realized. That's what we should be focused on. Hmm. I really, I, I, there's something to be learned uh, in what you just said that I feel like can apply to just life in terms of. Uh, not being worried about like the small, just like the, the 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 general violations that'll come up, but specifically the nightmares, the big things. And um, yeah, no, that's a again, that's a very that is uh, it's not what you see on Twitter. <laughs> it's not what you read on articles. Um, but uh, yeah, I think this direction in where we embrace that, like AI, is something that we can control that um can be like we can work with and we don't have to be afraid of is i mean that hopefully that's everyone's goal i think and i i, I think your book uh captures uh, the necessity to be on top of it from a um, ethics standpoint perfectly so um yeah Thanks again so man thank you thank you for making the time for this 
Um, for people listening, as usual, uh, if you made it to the end of the episode, always grateful for that. Um, yeah, but this is a song called Life, and we're out. Peace. Peace.